Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Today I'll be joined by occasional National Post columnist, Margaret Atwood. Pretty sure she writes some other stuff too. I guess I'll have to ask her about that. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is the last episode where I will be talking about the crowdfunding campaign for a year. For a year. All you will hear me say about it is at the end of each episode, if you like us, please support us. This is the time. Before you forget about it, if you've been meaning to, if you've been thinking about it, this is the time to go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and help us out. This is when your support will get the momentum going. This is when it will inspire others to do the same. And over 200 new supporters have joined us since last week. Thank you. Welcome. You blasted us past our last goal. We now have a legal defense fund. We have libel insurance. We will be reporting aggressively and responsibly. 
So what else are you paying us to do? You're paying us to give this show away to many other people for free, both as a podcast and as a nationally syndicated radio show. As I announced last week, we are on the air in 10 cities across this country. Well, that number has gone up since last week to 15, 15 college and community radio stations across Canada who we provide the show to for free. And if you want your local college or community radio station to also carry the syndicated version of Canada Land each week, we will just give it to them. Just just have their program director email Katie Jensen. She's at katie at canadalandshow.com and we'll work it out. What else? Our supporters pay for commons. Our supporters are paying for our live tapings. We'll be doing a bunch of those across the country this year. So I'm asking for whatever you're comfortable with, for a dollar a month, for five bucks a month. And if you can do seven bucks a month, and this also applies if you want to raise your pledge, a previous pledge up to seven dollars a month, if you can give us seven bucks a month, we will send you a t-shirt and a poster. And the poster is something special. The design of the poster is incredibly special. And the way that it's printed actually has a backstory that is a real Canada land backstory. There are these gargantuan industrial broadsheet printing presses that are lying dormant, scattered throughout the UK. Because newspapers are dying. And some of these printing presses have been reclaimed and repurposed by artists who are using them for, for weird printing projects like this Canada Land poster. I know this because the guy who designed our poster, also the guy who designed the t-shirt, he told me about it. And that guy is Montreal artist and musician and graphic designer Raymond Bissinger, I think. And he joins me now. How badly have I been butchering the pronunciation of your last name? I think that you've gone through about two different versions of it. Okay, what is it? Let me get it right. Uh, Beesinger. 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 Thank you for the poster. Everyone should go have a look at, uh, at, at patreon.com slash CanadaLand because you could spend a lot of time just looking at it. Yeah, that kind of thing is tremendous fun to put together. Kind of the largest, most complex version of uh, anything I've made in that style before. I'm just so appreciative of this poster that we're going to give you a plug right now. And I also kind of like like what we're <laughs> plugging. You've found these incredible archival Canadian prints, and you're making this available for people to buy online. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the late 19th century, a number of illustrators traveled the United States and Canada making these bird's eye views of different cities. Uh, and it was quite the visual trend. And it kind of mirrors a few things that I'm doing today. So anyway, I'm very interested in these maps. I found about uh, 60 or so ones of Canadian cities from the era. Apparently only about 100 were made in total. And I actually am making those available online through my online shop if anyone would like to get one. Okay, where can people find that? Civicatlas.etsy.com. Everyone should go have a look at these. They're a delight for the eyes. They're at Civic atlas.etsy.com. That is where these huge historic illustrations of Toronto, Montreal, Dawson City, Winnipeg, Montreal, dozens of other cities in, in Canada can be ogled at and bought, if you like, for $30 a piece. Raymond isn't doing this because it's a wonderfully lucrative business. He's not turning a real buck on it. It's a personal project of his because he discovered these archival images and he wants to make them available. And so he's sharing them with people. And I think that's a great way into the next thing I want to talk about, the last thing I'm going to talk about before we get to Margaret Atwood, which is our next goal. I mentioned it in passing last week. I mentioned that there's only one arts and culture show in this country, CBC Radio's Q, and we think we can do better. And since I put that out there, a lot of you have been asking me how we can do better. What do I have in mind? What is the arts and culture show that Canada Land wants to create? The problem with Q is that it is dictated by, I mean, there's no better way to put it. It's dictated by the culture industry. What is on cue is whatever book happens to be getting released this week, whatever album happens to be coming out, whatever 
whatever the press releases are pumping this week, whatever festival, whatever movie is hitting the theaters, it's very much part of an industry. That's fine. There's a place for that. But if you talk to people like Raymond, people who live in arts and culture, who are themselves producing arts and culture, who go and find interesting, obscure, unique arts and culture, the stuff that they get excited about, only a percentage of it is like the product that's dropping this week. They're just as likely to be interested in something from a very remote place or from a different time entirely. And those are the conversations you have when you talk to people who are interesting to talk about arts and culture with. I think the best thing that an arts and culture show can do is expose you to something you would never otherwise have known about. If I can walk away from a show about arts and culture with a favorite new band or a wonderful book I wouldn't have known about, that is the best thing that could happen. So I think that that discovery aspect is something that's not happening now, and that would be, I think, the first priority of our effort. The next thing is just when I listen to shows like Bullseye by Jesse Thorne or Slate's Culture Gab Fest, there's just a, a depth of understanding and passion and analysis. It really feels like you're hanging out with interesting, cool people who have have interesting, cool things to say about the art and culture that they love. I'm not getting that elsewhere. We need it in this country. And that's all I'm going to say about it, because the fun part of this process, once you guys get us to that goal, is putting the team together, finding the right hosts, finding the people who can do the art appreciation, the art discovery, and figure out what the show is going to be. So that's our goal. That's what we want to do. Help us get there. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand right now and help us push things forward and create a new and urgent and vital place for arts and culture in Canada. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So, mm-hmm. probably the first thing you want to talk about is the odd disappearance of my piece from the post, but that's because everything is moving at such a fast clip. Yeah. Uh, that, that might be sort of old news. 
I think that Margaret Atwood getting censored by the National Post will keep for a while. We can talk. You think about that. so? Yeah. yeah. I think that's pretty crazy that you were censored for well, saying what I think are just demonstrably true things. Well, they, they, there was nothing in there that wasn't already in the press, and n- n- multiple times, you know. Yeah. So it, no, no new news. Uh, maybe it was just the way I, I framed it. I don't know, but it was very, very odd, and we know it didn't come from editorial. But that was their story, right? Management story was that this hadn't been properly fact-checked, and then you... (laughs) (laughs) Well, what facts were wrong? So that's what you asked them. Did you ever get a response? No, no, no. The facts were all there, and everybody knew that. So, I mean, I think it was completely the wrong thing to do. If you have a a piece that people just could go, ha, 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 um, you let it pass. You know, you let the wave flow past and go, people go, ha, 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 and and then they forget about it. But that isn't what happened. They drew attention to the very things that they wanted to conceal. So it was sort of like putting something in a box and saying, don't look in here. And by the way, uh, the box is open. (laughs) (laughs) Are you familiar with the the Streisand effect? Have you heard of that term? I became familiar with it through Twitter because that's what people started referring to. And I, I learned a lot of stuff on Twitter that I didn't know before because they make these references and then I have to go look them up. Yeah. So now I know what the Streisand effect is, and that is, I'm hiding this, don't look. But but every kid knows, actually every parent knows, all right, I don't want you reading William Shakespeare. You're not allowed to read William Shakespeare. I'm putting it on the shelf, and I don't want you touching it. It's the greatest minute promotion. You're, yes, the minute you're out of the room, bang <laughs> into the Shakespeare. What were they thinking? Can we, like, hypothesize? I mean, well, it's the wrong thing to do. Who are they? I think first you have to ask... Who do we mean when we say they? So we don't mean editorial because they were not thinking that. Well, we know that we're talking at least about Jerry Knott, the senior vice president. Who we think we're talking about that, but I know nothing of the of the upper management structure there. If you're going to censor any piece, but especially a piece by arguably the most prominent writer in the country, shouldn't you do it before you publish it? Well, you'd think, but that wouldn't have washed. So then we can just take the original version and compare it to the next version, and we can see exactly what got them on a joint. I think possibly what happened was that somebody didn't realize that anything that has once been posted you can find through Google Cache. So I didn't know that either, but the ever-helpful Twitter pointed that out immediately. And the, the first moment I knew that the thing had disappeared was everybody started saying, Margaret, what happened to your column? It's gone. What? (laughs) What? It's gone? Where did it go? I was receiving some information from some some National Post staffers who are editorial staffers who wanted the story to get out that this wasn't their call but management's. Well, it would be awful for them because it it impugns their professionalism. Their entire independence. Their whole professional status as, as journalists and editors. So because I had opportunity to report this, I was called by BBC when they were, this became an international story. The Guardian wrote about it, BBC wrote about it, and then CBC syndicates BBC. So you got me back on CBC Radio 1 at, I think, 3, 3 a.m. for uh, five well, minutes. Well, so congratulations, I guess. <laughs> I can't imagine any other circumstance where that would have happened. So, well, uh, I, I don't think my mouth has ever been open for so long continuously as that evening because the first thing is Twitter saying, where did it go? So I, I'm going, where did it go? Yeah. And then I get an email saying, we're so sorry, we, we didn't follow the right protocol, we have to fact check the facts and I said what facts (laughs) it's much ado about what by your own description I mean I think there were some insights in there but it was it was was a fun piece you know I thought it was fun I guess 
Somebody didn't think it was fun. Somebody didn't think that the uh, statement of fact that Harper has an enemy stakeholder list, that Harper has not fully disclosed his— The, uh, the enemy stakeholder list was a piece in the National Post itself. <laughs> so what what went on? The other one was that uh, he hasn't disclosed his most wealthy donors, his biggest donors. Uh, apparently there are 10 of them that he has not disclosed. That's just and true. we would really, really like to know who they are. These are the donors who uh, funded his leadership— race when way, back he, when way back when but he still has not disclosed them so who are these what's the matter with them is he ashamed of them yeah are they illegal are they ashamed of him yeah. what's the story there and we still don't know and apparently we're not allowed to know i mean you've accepted that they have not answered this question what facts are wrong at least to the extent that you're still well, publishing well we, all, with we them. all know that the facts were right right how do you f- i mean it's a silly event it, their actions were silly the story was don't call my story silly got, well I, I got close but, anyway. <laughs> but it's not silly to be censored right i mean that's serious and they didn't ask you it's not f- silly to feel that there are shadowy eminences uh, that we don't know about who are controlling what you're allowed, what the paper itself, what editorial itself is allowed to print in the paper. Yeah. That's not silly. And uh, I'm old enough so that I was behind the Iron Curtain. I traveled in those Iron Curtain countries, not funded by them, I have to say. It was, it was Canadian foreign affairs when they still took an interest in um, artists. So I was in East Germany. Uh-huh. And that film called The Lives of Others, that was the atmosphere. Yeah. Very, very closed down. Stasi. Very, very, well, you know, you didn't see them, but everybody was scared to talk to you. Yeah. And that's how you know that you're in one of those countries. Czechoslovakia, I would have to go out into the middle of parks with people because they wouldn't talk in their car. They wouldn't talk in the hotel room. They wouldn't talk uh, anywhere where there might be a bug. So now, of course, we have even superseded those kinds of things. Even if you talked in the park, they could probably still pick up your conversation if they were interested. But people then tell you things. You couldn't say who told you, and you couldn't even be too explicit about what it was when you got back because you knew you would get them in trouble. On the other hand, Poland, and this would be 1984, what a symbolic year to be doing all that, Poland was a lot wider open. People were much more forthcoming, partly because there was a counterbalance to the regime, namely Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church. So people in Poland were less scared. Uh, In fact, they were practically unscared, and I think that's why uh, it cracked open first in in Poland. But to be clear, you are drawing a comparison, a parallel between... The atmosphere of fear. So not knowing who they are, the they, the them... (laughs) Uh, not knowing who's controlling what, yeah. and people scared to talk to you. You know, there are people who are going to hear you say this and say, well, that's just a wild overstatement to compare, you know, uh, communist Germany. Yeah, so we're not there yet. Let, let's be clear. We are by no means there yet, but you have to look at the way the direction is, is going. And yeah. I have this construct in my head. Uh, maybe I should market them. It's called the dictatometer. So over the top you have dictator. Yeah. It's a circle. Okay, up at the top you have dictator. Down at the bottom you have chaos. Uh-huh. So chaos is uh, when everything is just falling apart and there's nobody in control and the war of all against all. And out of the chaos you have on either side, left or right, I don't care what they call themselves, uh, you have warlords. 
Okay, going up from the warlords, you have a kind of comfort band across the middle, which is where we like to live, and we call that maybe kind of some form of democracy, whether it be left or right, but anyway, you get to vote. And you get to vote in some sort of uncontrolled way. It isn't just a pretend vote. Yeah. Uh, so you actually get to have a say. The, the peasants out of whom all wealth flows, and everybody, of course, wants to be in charge of grinding the peasants. That would be you and me and everybody else uh, who isn't uh, part of the apparat. So you get to throw those people out without assassinating them and chopping off their heads. Without, without violent overthrow. Yeah, without shift. the French Revolution and the terror. Right. You know, I would prefer to skip that, that part. <laughs> so where myself. are we with the dictator meter? Yeah. Uh, well, we're still in the, in the middle ground because we, we can still vote. Yeah. Uh, but then going up from there towards the top where you get dictator, you get left and right, don't care what they call themselves, the things that lead in that direction, and one of them is control of the press. Uh, another one is you have to get control of the court system. Um, so that the court system and the government are basically the same. So, so anybody who is accused is basically guilty. I, I read Darkness at Noon at a formative age. <laughs> it was very scary. Yeah. So you get those kinds of situations in which, uh, supposing you're innocent and you get accused, you actually have no recourse. And what you really don't want is the sort of situation where you can be accused by unknown people and never get to answer you, you never may even know what the charges are against But that is you. happening. That has happened. That's, what I'm, that's why I think Bill C-51 is so completely, totally scary. Okay. People think it's about uh, terrorists. It's actually a tool to control lots and lots and lots and lots of people, including politicians through blackmail. And uh, it's, a, it's a great setup for theft of IP because somebody looking at your stuff can can grab your IP and sell it to somebody else, and you would never know. So it's not that there are such things. We all know there. I've read a lot of John le Carre. You know, we, we, we know about uh, spy organizations. We've read Spy versus Spy in Mad Magazine. We, we know that these things exist and that we need a certain form of that because, yes, there are people trying to do horrible things, but it's the lack of oversight... And the lack of recourse. Yeah. It requires law enforcement. It, it requires uh, surveillance apparatus to be sharing information. It requires them to be controllable by government. And all of which, I mean, we, we've seen this. It's not about sci-fi projection. I mean, people say, oh, are you saying that we're heading towards some sort of 1984 situation with surveillance? We're way past 1984. Yeah, they didn't have those tools. It's beyond what yeah. any so when we novelist in, could envision. Exactly. So when, when we look at lives of others, we see them running wires up the wall. How primitive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Czechoslovakia, the, the bellboy said, he beckoned, come over into the corner, and he said, the chandelier is bugged. Yeah. He said, if there's anything you want, just stand under it and say there isn't a towel or something. You'll get one immediately. So they were listening in the whole time. But with primitive, uh, by our standards now, very primitive devices. These are the sort of direct warning signs. Yeah, so right up at the top, you get, you get the dictator. And, and, and that's, that's the trend that you're, that yeah, you're flagging yeah, here. Left or right, I don't care. But you you're know, looking at things Mao's like control, control of the legal process, control of the police. There's, there's another aspect of this, and, it, and, it, and it's the aspect where your name pops up. I see you in the press 
when there's talk of closing libraries. Yes. I see your name pop up when there's talk of, of science being muzzled. Yeah, the and, science and, thing is really serious, and we can talk about that. Well, what does that add up to? I mean, you know, and it's not all coming from the exact same place. It's, you, you can't blame the Harper government for all these things. I mean, you're, you know, battling with the Fords or whatever. But when we see a civil servant being suspended for a satiric song, when you hear even the talk of library, it, it all feels like an assault on civil society. Okay, so it's when people start taking you out into the park and saying, don't quote me. Uh-huh. I'm getting a lot of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Am I going one-two trend in pulling these disparate things, the Fords talking about libraries, the, the civil okay, servant? Okay, let's or, forget about the Fords talking about libraries and talk about the libraries the Harper government has closed sure. and, and trashed because he's done a number of them too. Uh, so what is it? What is one thing that dictators always like to do? Well, there's a list. I'm leading. <laughs> You're never going to guess. Uh, they like to erase history yeah. and replace it with themselves. So long, long ago, uh, when Garth Turner had just quit the Conservative Party because mm-hmm. he didn't like being dictated to, he reported that as soon as Harper got into head of the uh, party at that time, he got into the caucus room and took down the pictures of all of the other Canadian prime ministers and replaced them with ones of himself. And Garth Turner even had a picture of it briefly until I guess he got hit with an infringement of privacy or something like that. Uh, but that is that is the tendency. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, if you were going to be the, the big leader, you'd, you'd actually want to erase any previous history of, of people who did good things. And you want monuments like Mother Canada. You want monuments. Uh-huh. You definitely want big monuments. I, I was at the uh, Mother Canada site in Cape Breton. Yeah. You would not be able to see that thing from the land except from the back. You can't see it. So the monument to the fallen heroes would be a lady's behind. That's what the locals were saying. All you can see is her arse. Exactly. And, okay, number one. Number two, one good North Atlantic storm or possibly two of them, and those arms are going to fall off. And number three, a week later, it would be covered with graffiti. Uh I'm sorry, but those Cape Bretoners are stroppy. Uh They'd be out there with the spray. (laughs) So I I think it's a terrible, terrible idea, but it it also looks just so completely Stalinist. Isn't it embarrassing? It's it's textbook stuff, isn't it? Like it's not even a subtle form of these, the warning signs that you're heading on the wrong track. It's so on the nose. People my age remember all this stuff. Yeah. But younger people may not remember the moment when the wall came down and people were pulling down these ginormous statues of Stalin. They may not remember that Iran just before the uh, Ayatollah took over was covered with these these monuments and statues and things about the Shah. People who want to be Mr. Big Cheese, and it usually is Mr. Big Cheese, although sometimes it's Mrs. Big Cheese. Yeah. Um, they got to have their monuments. These things are obvious, and they're so clear. Well, they're obvious to me, but they're but by, I'm old. Yeah, you know, I'm old. I remember all of this stuff. It's so ostentatious, and but you're right. Maybe it works. There are other aspects of the influence that are not as easy to see. And I have to ask you about this. I have to ask you about the RCGS. What is the, the RCGS? Royal Canadian Geographic Society? They publish oh. Canadian Geographic magazine, and I'm just asking because I'm just curious. I saw that you and your husband were there at their fundraiser gala dinner. 
and I think that to a lot of people, this looks like it's it's a conservationist. It's an envi- it's a magazine no, about no, the environment. No, no, it's it's about um, yeah, it's about geography. Do you know about their association with the oil industry? No, we we did some reporting this past summer, which was interesting. It wasn't picked up anywhere, but what we found was that the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers is a partner of Canadian Geographic magazine. Shell is a partner. And they, they started to sponsor things like cover stories and articles, but they also do curriculum for schools. And what we learned was they give free lessons to schools that were sponsored by the Petroleum Lobby Group, where the Petroleum Lobby Group was given a chance to edit the lessons. Okay, about that's what not the, good. What the oil sand, and they edited is, out terms like clear cutting, and they edited out terms is, like tar sands. That is double plus ungood. Really, really ungood, but it's, it's, it's in sheep's clothing. It, it looks to the world like this is a magazine about... Canada's I'm geography. sure that since you have come out with this, there must have been some changes. They doubled down. They said that they remain in editorially independent. And yes, they allowed the petroleum producers to have a look at the lessons, but they never ceded control of the lessons. Well, then they should put those terms back. I think so. I think, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, we, we documented this as the press is crumbling as advertising dollars shift online. Okay, so that's what it is. It's about money. They move towards these uh, these partnerships where the advertisers had more and more influence over the editorial. You know, advertisers always did have in influence over editorial. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. Um, sure, of course. And there are, you know, if you have a really big, it used to be booze and cigarettes. And it was sort of a self-censorship. And cars. It's and cars, understood and cars. that you don't write too yeah, many articles about y- cancer. Y- yeah, or, or drunks or um, <laughs> those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that has always been there. It's just a question of which ones and what, where the pressure is coming. So, and let, it, let us just slot this in. In fact, I have a piece coming out in the Globe next week called Can Canadian Oil Green Clean Itself? There was a piece recently in which the, the head of Saudi Arabia was saying, you know, we know there's going to be an end to oil. It's not going to be, it's not going to be that we run out of oil. It's that the demand is going to fall. And have you been following the actions of Mr. Musk? I, don't, I have. The I don't, battery is pretty encouraging. Yeah, I don't mean putting people in a rocket and sending them to Mars. I'm, I'm not so interested in that part, yeah. but I'm very interested in the battery. And there is a Canadian non-toxic. There's, there's two things about batteries. Number one, efficiency. And number two, uh, can it be made without a lot of toxic stuff going on with it? Mm-hmm. So they have already some non-toxic batteries. They've got non-toxic solar panels. And a new thing that they've got is a panel that works on algae. So the algae huh. is inside the panel. <laughs> is that weird or what? It's weird. But it's... all of this stuff is, is coming at the speed of light. And yeah. you can do your own test. And the test is ask anybody you know. Now, some young people will say, well, I don't have a car anyway. So somebody who does have a car, um, you say, if you could have um, an efficient snazzy, uh, all-electric car that you could recharge in 20 minutes at a comparable price, would you get one? You know, for a, uh, an author of dystopian novels, you sound really optimistic about the possibility of technology saving us. Unless you're an optimist, you don't bother writing books. Yeah. You know, it's an, in itself, it's a, it's a very optimistic thing to do. Yeah. So, so there's that. There's the car. Everybody says yes immediately. And then if you say, and if you could have batteries in your house that recharge from, from solar and store power so that you can use it at night when it's dark, 
And if you could therefore do away with hydro bills, wires going into your house, all of those things, and the price was right, would you do it? For people who are unfamiliar with the Tesla battery, that's what they seem to have invented. That's what they seem to have invented. You can get off the grid. It can store wind and solar. Early stage, first iteration. And I'm I'm A lot of naysayers from us. You know, I'm so old that I remember the following things. I remember when everybody had a coal furnace. How long did it take before oil furnaces came in? The coal wagon disappeared from the streets. About 10 years. Uh, how long did it take? The first cell phones, they were enormous. They were called satellite phones. Yeah. They were $1,000. They had, they, you had to carry them around in a case. My grandfather had one. It was the size of a football. With exactly. <laughs> exactly. And everybody went, ha, 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 nobody will ever get this. Why would you yeah. have one? And look at it now. The cassette tape deck, that was even faster. As soon as CDs came in, bang, they were gone. And you can just go through the things that that have fallen out of favor. The icebox, gone. Yeah, my dad talks about that. I mean, I was a tech journalist for about seven years, and we were always inflating these balloons that this is going to be the next savior. And if it didn't take off immediately and change the world, we would then prick it ourselves and say, yeah, well, that was a bust. That was stupid. And then wait five or ten years, and it actually would come to pass. Exactly. Well, how long did it take the sewing machine to, to as they say, roll out? Yeah. 80 years. <laughs> so what about Twitter? Because, you know... There's this interesting tension going on between books, between print media, and this new form. I mean, I read from the moment I wake up in the morning to the moment I go to bed at night, I'm reading. But I'm not yeah. reading books. And I, you know, You're and reading I, stuff online, but I'm that's your job. Online. It's your job. It is, but you know what? It's not really your job, but you do it a lot. You've got almost a million followers on Twitter. I'm old. And I, I, this, is, this, is, this is my Margaret Atwood expose. Three days ago, you said, okay, in the midst of all this censorship stuff, you said, all right, everybody, I'm taking a break. I'm going yeah. into the writer's borough. No more Twitter. I got to write. And So I did. There are about 100 tweets from you and retweets since then. Oh, but that, I just said four days. I, I think During I was, those three days, there's about 61 tweets from you. There were retweets, a lot of them. Uh, some Who's of counting? Them, you're, some counting of them. you're counting my tweets. That's obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> I do my research. Yeah, so it is true. Do you find it hard to turn off? Oh, everybody finds it hard to turn off. It's an addictive thing, and the reason it's an addictive thing is that, is that like, it's like Easter eggs. Yeah. So you wake up in the morning, is there going to be an Easter egg for me? I used to have the same relationship with the rural mailbox when I was a teenager and I was living in the country for part of the summer and I had a boyfriend. So would there be a letter from my boyfriend in the mailbox today? So you'd go down to look at the mailbox and there wouldn't be one. And then the next day there would be. Uh, So checking it, people check this stuff to see if there's an Easter egg for them. That promise of it's it's something. It's, it's interesting. It's a promise of a little adrenaline hit. Whenever you get a little buzz in your pants that your phone is telling you, and and, and really, it's I mean, excuse me, what did you just say? <laughs> you know, you're you're out there. You're, you're a public person. And tell me about this buzz in your pants. My phone vibrates. Oh, I see. Okay. When somebody sends me an email, All and right. I, I put my email address out on this phone every, uh, on on this podcast every week, so anybody can make my pants buzz. They can. They, anyone can do it. I think that's very difficult for you. It is. I'm like playing with my kids. I'm I'm out living my life, and just that. Oh, well, this could be something good. I have to exactly. Check. And usually it isn't. No. But uh, but sometimes it is, and and that is. Do you know about the pigeon principle? What's the pigeon okay, principle? I'll tell you the pigeon principle. My dad was a biologist, so I used to get these biological examples. 
The pigeon principle was they did an experiment with pigeons, and they taught the pigeons that if they pecked on a lever, they got one grain of corn per, per peck. The first group of pigeons found that if they pecked the lever, they didn't get any corn anymore, so they stopped pecking. The second group got uh, corn every five times, and they kept pecking because mm-hmm. they knew it was predictable. The third group, it was random. They never stopped pecking. So when it's random, but there's a possibility of a reward, people become like gamblers. Right. You know, maybe this time all the little wheels will spin around and I'll get a, a bonanza. It's more compulsive than if it was always It's more news. compulsive than if it's predictable. Yeah. That's frightening. Isn't it frightening? And yet I love it. I well, have to say I love it. There you go. You like those little buzzes and adrenaline hits. <laughs> but it, it, it's, a, it's a challenge to be a human in the world, in my skin, with the people in my life. Uh, there you and go. And also yes. to be a part of whatever it is that we're engaging in together. Yeah. So I think you are in the in uh, you are doing a a podcast and a website that reveals things to people that they would otherwise possibly not know. And I, on the other hand, with my Twitter, I see it like a little radio program. Um, I I invite guests, as it were. I have little conversations with them as you might have with a phone-in thing. Uh, if they get rowdy, I kick them off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obstreperous. And uh, if they start yelling at each other, I don't like that either. Right. Yelling, yelling in an uncivil manner. Um, so mine is, mine is pretty clean, a, a fairly clean stream. It's not mission critical for you. You can turn your back on it and do what you're supposed to do. It's not my job. Yeah. But it is my public service, if you like. So right. I, I, can put out, um, I can put out other people's books. I can put out uh, pieces of information. I can refer people to articles I think they might want to read, all of those sorts of things. And once in a while I put up a fun thing such as uh, a burrowing owl making a noise like a rattlesnake. You seem to enjoy yourself on Twitter. I do. Yeah. Possibly a little too much. <laughs> um, it is my job to, to look at the media in, in all of its forms and try to tell people things they don't know before. And I look at your part of the media that you exist. I mean, you exist in a bunch, but I look at publishing. Yes. And Canadian publishing and can yes. lit. Yes. And I'm deeply suspicious. What are you suspicious of? I'm suspicious of... Of course, you're suspicious of everything. I am. It's your job to be suspicious. Skeptical, curious. But I'm, I'm specifically suspicious of Canadian publishing because it's like... I feel like there's this constant message of puffery and the Gillers and the GGs are always kind of lavishing awards on one another and then Canada reads and everyone's talking about... It's, it's just agreed that this is wonderful with... We should uh, celebrate this. Well, it used to be the other way around. So everything, you, you always have to be careful what you wish for. Right. Okay? So a lot of the things that are with us today were invented by my generation in the 60s because yeah. they weren't there. So there were no, let me see, what weren't there any? There were no creative writing schools, uh, maybe two. There were no book tours. Jack McClelland essentially invented the book tour because mm-hmm. Canada is so big. He was sending people out on this kill an author tour. And he, he did that before people started doing it in the States. There were no literary festivals. The first freestanding authors-only literary festival was at Harborfront. And it devolved out of the Bohemian Embassy Authors' Night back in the early 60s. So it was folk singing one night, jazz another night. It was a coffee house called the Bohemian Embassy. Mm-hmm. And it would get mail from people who wanted a visa because they thought it was a real embassy. 
was one of those dark spaces with the candy bottles and all of that. And that's where the authors' festivals came from because because there weren't any and people felt a need, especially in a country like Canada, to connect people, to connect readers with with writers. So all of that grew out of that period of time. And once upon a time, there were only the Governor General's Awards and they weren't covered by the press hardly at all. You know, they were very, very sort of obscure thing. So well may you think it is puffery and all the rest of it, but consider the alternative. And uh, the the other thing, of course, that people are, have been tracking and looking at is that about five years ago, we were told it was all going to be digital. That has not happened. There are neurological reasons for that. Um, but digital went up to a certain level, and then it, it went back down, and it sort of stayed at that level, and the paper book has, has come back. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you if the novel's dead or dying. We can, the novel we can avoid is that. not dead. We're not going to do the that. Novel, but... Everybody keeps saying the novel is dead, but the novel isn't dead. The novel isn't even a zombie. <laughs> it's still alive. But not a lot of people move novels like you move novels. All of that... I mean, what you're, what you're describing is, and I, I can understand Actually, the context. a lot of people move novels like I move novels. Come on. But they may not be in this country. Not in this country. That's what I'm saying, is that uh-huh. born out of the necessity and the lack of all of this self-celebration, self-promotion, we have built, I don't know what you call it, but an establishment. I mean, it's a system of, there are creative writing programs. There are writers who probably couldn't make a living it's writing a books very, who teach at those programs. It's a very jelly-to-the-wall establishment. I mean, you... you it's, its edges are extremely mobile. The grants, the fellowships, and yet the book itself, what do you get? 5,000 copies is a bestseller in this country? So, like, the mass media is always trumpeting books, but what about the books themselves? It feels like the media about the books is the thing, more like, with certain exceptions, you being one of the few. I cannot remember a time when publishers were not moaning and crying. Uh, but, of course, they're gamblers. Yeah. Just, so publishing is gambling. Writing is gambling. It's the most entrepreneurial thing you can do. You're not a gambler if you're a teeny, a, a teeny publisher in Canada who gets all your funding from the government and you expect to lose money on the books you print. You're still a gambler um, because you're shoving it out there and, and nothing um, may come of it. And probably next year you may have, be scrutinized and not get your grant. Doubtless that needs to be looked at with narrow eyes. Yeah. You kind of co-inhabit these two, you know, you engage with fans and with fandom, and you're a fan yourself, and you're a Game of Thrones fan, and you're into comic, comic books. And <laughs> it's European history, but without the, you know, they added dragons and zombies, but... that's I love that show, and then I realized at a certain point, I'm a grown man, and this is a show about dragons. And, no, you know. it's a show about the, the Wars of the Roses and the yeah. Capetian dynasty in France. They were doing all that stuff, except they never sewed somebody's... Head onto a, they never sewed a wolf's head onto somebody's neck. And there weren't always bare breasts behind everything, or maybe there were, I don't know. Well, there were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something, I, I find uh, there's an interesting contrast between parts of culture that get none of that establishment. I mean, comic books, there's no real, God help comics if they keep getting respectable, because it's wonderful. I would rather have readers than awards. Have you looked at comics lately? Yeah, I know. I, 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 as the words were exiting my mouth, I realized that I had... Uh... There is a huge comic comic culture out there. Yeah. It's it's vast. And some of the work in it, I have to say, is extremely creative mm-hmm. and good. Um, so having... I know, and that's why it has a readership. You know, it doesn't well, need respectability. Well, no, 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 has... no. Hang on here. 
Uh, there are a lot of creative and good books that don't get readerships. There's a lot of luck involved in all totally, of this. Totally, totally. When I said gambling and entrepreneurial, I really meant it. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can dedicate your life to writing your book, and it can be a very good book, and it can go nowhere. Yeah. The rules are changing. The gatekeepers aren't the same. And they're, and they're, I hate to suggest that we might be moving closer to a meritocracy because there are wonderful things that get ignored. But if you got something great, you can get it to an audience now. In theory, yeah. <laughs> but in theory. So, you know, the self-publishing was, was trumpeted as being the big answer to everything. Um, but as a lot of people have discovered, you can self-publish, it's out there, but how do you let the readers that, that you want to be your readers know about it? And it's the same problem it always was. Cutting so, through the... Well, just, you know, how do you connect? I've, mm-hmm. Back in the early days of book tours, I, I went up the Ottawa Valley and I did readings in, in high school gyms. And I was the first living author that those people had ever seen. I had the books in a cardboard box. I was taking them on the Greyhound bus and I was selling them myself. It was before there were credit cards. And I was collecting the change and I was putting in an envelope and taking it back to the publisher. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up in the north, so, so people were saying to me, well, we'll put one row of chairs. I said, no, no, this place is going to be full. Yeah. First of all, maybe they knew my dad, but also, they'll be curious. You know, they've seen the movie in town, if there is one, and they'll all be coming out, whether they read poetry or not, because it was poetry in those days. Whether they read poetry or not, they will all want to come and see what this is. And, and it's back at that because people are so disconnected that they want the in-person experience. They again. want the in-person experience. And I think the connection between online and in-person is that online drives in-person. So if you have an online following, you're more likely to get them coming out in, in person for something they actually can't get. It's the face-to-face that they want. It's not, it's not the signature on the book. To it, what's with the pen? They want the fi- signature on the book, too. They do. But, but, <laughs> they but, want both. You got to tell me what's with the pen. Okay, what's so with the, the pen, pen. Okay, so the the ro- the pen. Let us not say it is a robot pen. Let us say that it is a beam me up Scotty experience uh-huh. in which a physical thing gets gets turned into pixels before your very eyes, and shoots through the stratosphere and recombines itself as uh, Captain Kirk is recombined out of that uh, the, the swirly bits on the alien planet. Your signature, what you did and whatever you drew and anything you wrote goes whizzing through heaven knows what and then gets recreated elsewhere as a physical thing. So that was the first iteration and we did that to take book signings to places where publishers never sent people and therefore those, those people in those places never got to have those things. So that was the first idea. And, um... Then, of course, like all of these things, you find that you've invented something that has purposes other than what you thought. It always goes that way, isn't it? It what, seems what you imagine the to be do that is way. What it does. Yeah, so if you go on to the following website, S-Y-N-G-R-A-F-I-I-Inc.com, um, you will find all of the other applications that have now come to light. And, of course, the pen had to go digital like a lot, lot of other things. So what it can now do, it's got something called digital paper in which you can, you can store that document with the signature on it digitally until you need it physically. I mean, everybody's signing things electronically. You just scan your own signature and paste it on a PDF or whatever. 
But this is for those little pockets of law where you actually have to have witnesses seeing somebody sign something. You, you have you to have to a, a physical piece of paper with, with um, real, right. real writing on it. And one of the reasons for that is that um, a scan and a fax is two-dimensional. So if all you need is a fax, I can forge your signature no problem. Yeah. I can make a two-dimensional image of, of your writing. But writing on a piece of paper is three-dimensional. A lot of institutions for certain kinds of transactions will not accept two-dimensional images. So they use your, your device? Got to be that one. You raking it in? Is that a big not, market I would not hit? Not quite yet, dear. All right. <laughs> <laughs> in your first round of interviews way back, you talked about the obstacle being... There were snobs who considered the idea of Canadian literature an oxymoron. What is the obstacle now? If you're a writer... I would say other writers. Yeah, backbiting. <laughs> okay. kind of. Well, no, there's just so many of them. Uh-huh. So back when we started... Is start- that true? Is there more good writing to compete with now than there was? Okay. When we started, uh, it was a really sucky thing to do. I mean, your parents didn't want to admit it to to other people. They, they wanted their kids to be doctors, lawyers, and I would probably still say that to a parent, you know, get them a dentistry degree and then they can be a writer. Yeah. Uh, you, need a, you need a day job. Still, because it's not the sort of thing where I'm a writer, I've got a pension plan, I get a regular paycheck. That doesn't happen. You're a freelance. Yeah, it's even worse now because you used to have midlist authors. It doesn't really uh, well. Know. They still exist, and they're still midlist authors. So, but what what has happened more is that publishers used to invest in a writer, mm-hmm. such as Graham Greene, and lose money on their first, you know, four or five books. Yeah. And then and then they would get a reputation to become established, and then you could sell their backlist. Yeah. So that is happening a lot less, partly because there was a change in the U.S. law that meant uh, warehoused books had to be taxed as inventory. Uh-huh. And so it made it disadvantageous to keep around a lot of books that you hadn't sold yet in the hopes that next time... Uh, your person was going to make a breakthrough. So what they do now more is they take a gamble on a new writer and push them out, hope they'll break through right then. And if they don't, then it's bad news for their second book. So that's one obstacle they're up against. Is another obstacle that it's now Penguin Random House, Doubleday, Knopf, McClellan, Stewart, monolithic, there's like one big... Why did they do that? You tell me. Amazon. Yeah. That's why. Um, so, yeah, I think, but within that monolithic structure, which is really a structure for distribution and accounting, there are all of these entities within it that are autonomous from the editorial point of view. On the other hand, the bean counters are ever-present, and the bean counters will say, okay, you've exceeded your budget, uh, little imprint house. So they will say things like that. Mm-hmm. And they've explicitly said they're only looking for books they can get $100,000 in. in, in I think, Who has probably. said that? Brad Martin. Oh, Brad. Oh, Brad, you've been very, very naughty. <laughs> there are a lot of other publishers around. For instance, Nancy, which, which we started out with in the 60s, we uh, started it as a poetry publishing company yeah. in the 60s. And then it went into novels around 1969. Um, in fact, I wrote my book, Survival, as a way of funding it, mm-hmm. because I was on the, its editorial board and its and its board at that time, and uh, that was just you know it was kids 
kids doing it and it was sweat equity and nobody made any money out of it. But we felt that it had to be there to publish people that the establishment publishers of that time wouldn't publish. And those places still exist, and that's why small publishers, if they're good small publishers, are important. Uh, ECW and and Coach House and Nancy. And Nancy is now, a, I would call, a mid-range publisher. It's probably the biggest mid-range publisher in the country. Are you encouraged by the state of things? Are you optimistic there as well? These things just change constantly. So what is encouraging is that kids are still interested in reading and writing, and they are quite massively interested in it, but they might not be doing it in places that that hit the charts in the old way of counting things. So if you look at number of people on Wattpad, uh, an entrepreneurial group of people, I think sure. it's 45 million. Which is, I guess, a platform for self-publishing fan fiction. And, and, and writing serial stories. Yeah. And not even just fan fiction, but all, all kinds of things. And they, I think, if there had been a Wattpad when I was in high school, I would have been on it like a shot. Why? Because you can use a, a pretend name, and therefore your peer group wouldn't laugh at you for your steamy vampire story your parents wouldn't be horrified and your teachers wouldn't be in there correcting your grammar. (laughs) So as it was, all we had was the high school yearbook. So what are you going to put in there? My summer vacation. I can't tell if you're like a standard bearer protecting the, what has been built and that you've sort of been, had a hand in building is this literary establishment in Canada, the whole machinery around it, or what I think is an existential threat to it, which is not an existential threat and the rest. You don't, that is not an existential threat. If you don't have young readers, you're not going to have older readers. Uh-huh. So a lot of people get their experience, especially if they're in a poor country. They don't have money to buy books. They aren't, can't even go on a, a digital reading site. They don't have the money for that either. But they, they're going to have among them a, a phone. And you can read and write with Wattpad using a phone. So yeah. you're, you're enabling a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have the chance to do this. And uh, I think that's a big plus. So if you think of it rather than, you know, establishment structure, this, that, and the other thing, but just as a great big balloon called reading and writing, or call it literacy, uh, I think Wattpad is a literacy enabler because it's free and you can do it on your phone. You're very engaged with this stuff. I mean, the terms that come up when one searches bios of you, profiles, it's always a national treasure and an icon. You know, I so hate that because what is an icon? An icon is an, is an inert wooden figure. It's just you should be <laughs> stuffed and put on display I should in the be Museum stuffed. of History. Like Jeremy Bentham. Do you know that he got himself, he put in his will that he was going to be stuffed. And he got himself stuffed. He was the inventor of utilitarianism. And he left enough money so that his stuffed person could be wheeled out every year for a dinner party. I think he's getting a bit mothy. But he's still there. Yeah. Stuffed. Not your fate. Uh, not yet. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I, I don't like that kind of thing. It kind of assumes you're frozen in time, that you have to be, you know, revered or iconoclasm sets in and that kind of thing. And that that is a very undynamic situation. You've been really generous with your time. I, I can't tell you how pleased I am to have you here. And I just wonder if we can't spend whatever time you can spare going through your, your novels and telling me 
who the characters are based on in real life and what the meaning what of, the, the, the precise intended meaning of each symbol. No, I'm here. not going to do that. We can do that, right? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching mostly the ones that are archived at your CBC. I, I, I give CBC archives a hard time for not having enough up, but your interviews are up. Got so, Hannah yeah. Gartner. They never I'm played that. Gartner at, years ago. They never played that at the time because it, it was, was so awful. Awkward. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with her. Um, you know, what did I what did I do to annoy her so much? She wanted me to say that everything in my books was autobiography, I think. There was that and she seemed she seemed upset with you for being negative. Negative. Yeah, that she, that the, the male female relationships were were so fraught. Oh, well, dear, if you want a nice one, you can always go and read Pride and Prejudice, but that's very negative in the middle and that's why we like it. Yeah. I think you told her that if uh, if that's what she wanted, she could go read some Harlequin romance novels. Well, if she wanted positive all the way through. Of course, Mr. Mr. Darcy in disguise is always a bit negative, even in those, to begin with, but then he gets won over. In any event, I was terrified, but you've been delightful, so thank you very much. I'm not terrifying. I don't find you scary at all. There you are. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm also on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is canadalandshow.com. And the crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. And the next episode of Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.